going to spend some time over the next two Sundays, three Sundays, this Sunday and the next two to follow, Lord willing, and look at some important passages in the Gospel of Luke related to the Christmas story. Now, somebody took it upon themselves this past week to leave something on my desk. I always like it when I get these. This one says, Pastor Warning, anything you say or do could be used in a sermon. (laughs) I don't know who gave this to me, Pittman, but uh, (laughs) thank you for that. I try very hard not to do that, to be honest, but it can be a temptation. (laughs) Well, I appreciate gifts, and I like to laugh, so that was a good one. Thank you. Before we get into our passage today, let's go to the Lord in prayer. Lord, we love you. We thank you for this glorious day that you've given to us. And all these songs that we've been singing this morning help us to reflect on the wonder of this season of Advent and the fact that you came and dwelt among us and by doing so lived a life of perfection in accordance with the will of God obtaining the satisfaction of the law on our behalf, which was applied to our account so graciously. Thank you for that. May we be mindful of the magnitude and the wonder of what this season contemplates. May we not just blindly pass through it, not pondering and wondering and cherishing all of the things that have taken place to bring about our salvation. Lord, thank you for the gospel of Luke. Thank you for its clarity. Thank you for so graciously giving it to us and preserving it for your church for all of these ages. We praise you in the name of Jesus Christ, in whose name we pray. Amen. Well, the season that is upon us is an important one, Christmas, of course. And there are a lot of different ways to approach it, but what I wanted to do is to take the time to get into God's Word and to communicate to you the real Christmas story according to Luke. There are a lot of things that are said about this season. There are a lot of talk about peace and goodwill and things of that nature in some circles, not as much as it used to be. Even yesterday, I was at a, what I believed to be a Christian establishment and said Merry Christmas to someone, and they kind of looked at me and barely said it back. It seems that there's much stigma attached these days to communicating even the most simple phrase that reflects on the person of Christ in some way, not even, perhaps even directly. So this time, we're going to take a look at the Gospel of Luke and consider what it is that he has for us to make certain that we are immersed in the story to the level that Luke and others were. What's fascinating about what we're going to find here is the detail that Luke gives us. Luke is a fact-driven communicator. He likes facts. That makes sense. He's a doctor. He likes the details, he wants to provide information, and he wants to provide information for a purpose, to communicate a truth that he firmly and strongly holds to. And I hope that his conviction and the conviction of others that were of his day becomes ours as well during this Advent season. What a great opportunity for the church to communicate the glorious message of the gospel. 
What a great opportunity for you to be filled, filled with zeal and wonder at what Christ has done in coming and dwelling with us, giving us the opportunity to know him and to be saved. Of course, we have to believe these things. The Christmas story is not an option. Either you believe it or you don't. If you don't, you're not a Christian. And you're not going to heaven. Let's be clear about that. What happens in this time frame that we focus on right now is significant in that it communicates an important truth. It communicates this truth. Men are in desperate need of a Savior. We read in Matthew chapter 1 this morning, verse 21, that his name was called Jesus. There's a reason for that. And he will save his people from their bad luck, hard lives, desperate living conditions, from their injustice, from their social woes, from their anxiety, from their economic distress. Is that what it says? No. Importantly, it says he will save their, his people from their sins, plural. The comprehensive nature of the work and person of Jesus Christ is communicated even in that simple passage. And my hope is that over the next three Sundays, as we delve into the Gospel of Luke with regard to the content of his message regarding the birth of Christ, that our hearts will be kindled anew as we ponder what he says and what he communicated to us. So let's begin at the beginning. This is what Luke does for his audience and for the person to whom he is writing. He begins at the beginning. He gives a great preface, and he introduces us to some important things that we need to understand to make us appreciate the Christmas story even more. So let's look at the Gospel of Luke. We're going to read chapter 1 through verse 25. Luke chapter 1. Let's not forget, too, Luke's a Gentile, wasn't one of the disciples, and he's not an apostle. Interesting facts about Luke. We met Luke in Colossians and spent some time talking about him there. We'll meet some other people here, too, that we'll spend some time considering also. Verse 1, chapter 1, Inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word, it seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order, most excellent Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. Verse 5. In the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife from the daughter of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. They were both righteous in the sight of God, walking blamelessly in all the commandments and requirements of the Lord. But they had no child, because Elizabeth was barren and they were both advanced in years. 
Now, it had happened that while he was performing his priestly service before God in the appointed order of his division, according to the custom of the priestly office, he was chosen by lot to enter the temple of the Lord and burn incense. And the whole multitude of the people were in prayer outside of the hour of the incense offering. And an angel of the Lord appeared to him, standing to the right of the altar of incense. Zacharias was troubled when he saw the angel, and fear gripped him. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zacharias, for your petition has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and you will give him the name John. You will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth. For he will be great in the sight of the Lord, and he will drink no wine or liquor, and he will be filled with the Holy Spirit while yet in his mother's womb. And he will turn many of the sons of Israel back to their God. It is he who will go as a forerunner before him in the spirit and power of Elijah to turn the hearts of the fathers back to their children and the disobedient to the attitude of the righteous so as to make ready a people prepared for the Lord. Zechariah said to the angel, How will I know this for certain? For I am an old man and my wife is advanced in years. The angel answered and said to him, I am Gabriel who stands in the presence of God. And I have been sent to speak to you and to bring you this good news. And I think that was said with a lot of firmness. And we're going to talk about that a little bit more. And behold, you shall be silent and unable to speak until the day when these things take place, because you did not believe my words, which will be fulfilled in their proper time. The people were waiting for Zacharias and were wondering at his delay in the temple. But when he came out, he was unable to speak to them. And they realized that he had seen a vision in the temple and he kept making signs to them and remained mute. When the days of his priestly service were ended, he went back home. After these days, Elizabeth, his wife, became pregnant and she kept herself in seclusion for five months saying, this is the way the Lord has dealt with me in the days when he looked with favor upon me to take away my disgrace among men. All right, so a lot of information here, a great chapter, a great opening passage. Let's go to verse 1 and consider what we have here in verses 1 through 4. I want you to consider three things with me, if you will. I want you to consider in Luke's introduction the fact that he has a certain level of fascination, a passion, and an intention. A fascination, a passion, and an intention. And Luke's fascination ought to be our fascination. His fascination is with the gospel story, with the content of the gospel, which is the life and work of Jesus Christ. Let me be very clear about something. You are not the gospel. Notice that Luke isn't talking about himself. Notice that Luke isn't talking about Theophilus. Notice that Luke isn't talking about the other apostles or disciples. He's going to be talking about Jesus Christ. And he begins to lay the foundation for Theophilus right out of the gate as to the authenticity of Jesus Christ. And he's going to use facts to establish who Jesus Christ is. Friends, in your witness to people, in your evangelism with people, these types of things are important. People have to believe this. This is what we put our faith and trust in. We have this information for a reason. This isn't just a cute story to be told at Christmas time. 
what I like about this is when we consider what Luke says in verse 1. He says, inasmuch as many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. Luke, along with others, are enthralled, they're fascinated with what is taking place, what has taken place with regard to Jesus Christ. And they're so fascinated with it that they wanted to compile a narrative of facts. Those things accomplished. And what is the fascination? The fascination is that those facts establish the fulfillment of prophecy. That things which were foretold hundreds and thousands of years before came to fruition in the person of Jesus Christ. That was significant to them. It's so much so that there are many, it says, in as much as many. There were many people writing these things down, talking to eyewitnesses. One commentator notes that it is likely that there were numerous tracts circulating in this point in history where people were writing down the things that they had heard about Jesus Christ. The Gospel of John ends with the things that all the things that Jesus Christ could not be written down because they would consume the world. It would take all of the world to contain them. And so people were writing things down. They wanted people to know that this man came. He was, he was born of Mary and Joseph and, and he did these things and this is in fulfillment of all the things that were foretold. As you and I contemplate the Christmas season, we cannot forget that important fact that his coming was foretold. His coming was proclaimed repeatedly over thousands of years by numerous men who were called by God to proclaim the coming of the Messiah. And now you and I here today sit in the full-orbed splendor of the fulfillment of all of that. Are we as fascinated as Luke and many others were? I find this opening verse really quite intriguing. Many have undertaken to compile an account of the things accomplished among us. It's interesting. They're not talking about their best life. They're not talking about their prosperity. They're not talking about grave soaking or speaking in tongues or anything else. They're talking about the witness that they find in the life of Jesus Christ authenticating the message of Scripture. And because of that, they can then with confidence believe that Jesus Christ is the Messiah. You and I, unfortunately, in today's world, experience somewhat of a, a, a passe, kind of blasé, oh, it's a Christmas story, and we kind of get through it just to get through it. We ought to be fascinated. We ought to be overwhelmed. And indeed, are, do we communicate this in the same way? There are many people, it says, according to Luke, have undertaken the endeavor to tell other people about Jesus Christ. That's the implication of this. They're so fascinated with it that they're writing it down. They're so fascinated with it, and Luke is so fascinated with it, that we will find in the next passage that he's going to speak to other eyewitnesses. He wants to confirm it. That idea of eyewitnesses is very important, legally speaking, because with the affirmation of two or more witnesses, you confirm a fact. 
Well, Luke went and talked to a lot of people. We're going to find that same truth to be evident in Revelation chapter 11, the two witnesses. Why do you think there are two witnesses? We'll get there next Sunday. And so Luke is is fascinated. So we want to focus, we want to think about the fascination. He notes as well in verse 2, just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants of the word. And so Luke is fascinated. There is a full conviction about what has happened in the work and person of Jesus Christ. Now, keeping in mind, Luke is writing this well after Christ has ascended to heaven, probably sometime in the 50s or 60s AD is what most believe in that context, writing these things down that way. And this still goes on. So there's a full conviction of the fact that Jesus Christ is indeed the Messiah. He is the one who came to save his people from their sins. And as the redeemed of Christ, that ought to excite us. And I would say and submit to you that we ought to be more fascinated than even Luke was because we have the full revelation of Scripture sitting in your lap in Beloit, Ohio today. I find it intriguing that Luke's fascination with these things has resulted in a book that you now have open in front of you some 2,000 years later. I love that. What we find here then is that Luke's fascination was based upon a full conviction of the accuracy, of the truth, of the accounts that are provided by the witnesses to the life of Christ. And a conviction is important. We live in a day and age when you can't have convictions. If you have a conviction, you're a bigot or you're a racist or you're whatever, whatever category we've created for these things. But Luke was a man of conviction, and a conviction is a firmly held opinion, a persuasion, a strong belief. And the idea that's being communicated here is one of expectancy being fulfilled. Luke's emphasis is on the idea that what was accomplished was a fulfillment of prophecy. And to see that and to have witnessed that generated excitement among many people is what we know from verse 1. So it's just not Luke, it's many others who were preoccupied with the story of Jesus. Now, now think about this, friends. The story of Jesus is of imminent importance. It's not about you. Can we please get our minds around it? The story of Christmas and what Luke's account is giving to us is the, de- the details that we need to know about Jesus Christ. Who he was, where he came from, what he did, why he did it, when he did it, where he did it, to whom he did it, with whom he did it. Those are all important facts because All of those facts point then to the fact that he is the Son of God. He is the Messiah. He is the Savior. His name is Jesus Christ. The Savior, Messiah, is basically what his name means. He is the chosen one. He is the appointed one. And so this idea of a fulfillment of expectancy. They've heard the prophets. They've read Isaiah. They've read the others. 
And now they see this man before them, and they've witnessed what he is doing and has done. And they want to talk about it because to understand it is to know him, and to know him is to be able to be saved. It's information that's critical to salvation. So we take away from this importantly in regards to the fascination, the focus of the fascination is on Jesus Christ. It's not on economic turmoil, it's not on social justice. It's not on poverty, it's not on economic collapse, it's not on wars, it's on the work and person of Jesus Christ. The church needs to take a lesson from Luke. What is the focus of our fascination? We've been too distracted, especially in the last three or four years. We've been entirely too distracted. We've been told there's a lot of other means and opportunities to accomplish things for the church that are unrelated to the gospel. We're not talking about the life of Christ like we ought to. We're not talking about the things that he, should, he did as we ought to, bearing in mind that faith is made up of knowledge, assent, and trust. What's that knowledge about? You? Your life? What are you assenting to? What are you trusting in? Yourself? Well, churches are spending a lot of time talking about you and not him. So Luke, so he's writing to Theophilus. I'll get that. Someone take your medication. <laughs> or wake up. <laughs> Oops. He's writing to Theophilus. So who's Theophilus? Well, many believe that Theophilus was a young believer, a benefactor of Luke, likely a person who was involved in helping Luke publish this epistle or this gospel. He would have helped Luke print it and disperse it to other people. But it's important for Luke that Theophilus gets it right. He understands the facts, and he wants Theophilus to share in that fascination. So we find here then that there's an eagerness to pass on the gospel record. We see that in verse 3. It seemed fitting for me as well, having investigated everything carefully from the beginning, to write it out for you in consecutive order. Most excellent Theophilus. Why? Why? so that you may know the exact truth about the things you have been taught. So Theophilus is hearing people preach. He's probably hearing Luke preach. He's hearing others preach, perhaps Paul and others, Peter. And he wants Theophilus to make certain that he's grounded in the factual basis as to why you can believe in Jesus Christ. You need to understand who he is, what he did, and why he did it. And you need to have it correctly presented. In fact, Luke is so concerned about it that he affirms for Theophilus that I just didn't casually write this down from some guy on the side of the street. I investigated this. 
I talked to the eyewitnesses. I've talked to the people who saw him, who heard him, who saw the things that he did. I've gone to them. I wanted to verify it for myself. Luke, a physician, has an inquisitive mind. He wants to know the truth. And through multiple witnesses and repeated affirmation of the same thing over and over and over from lots of people, the truth is established. We find that to be the case. We shouldn't marvel at that. You shouldn't guffaw that. That happens every day in courtrooms. The more witnesses you have, the better your case is. I love to parade witnesses up who over and over and over again establish for the jury or the trier of fact the facts. The truth is affirmed through multiple witnesses. And at the end of that process, you draw a conclusion. This is what is true. So this is what Luke is doing for Theophilus. Many others are doing this with him, which is intriguing to me. And we find then that Luke's eagerness to pass on the gospel record is affirmed then by the fact that he goes back and he talks to all these witnesses. What we find then here in this time frame for Luke is that folks had itchy pens, so to speak. Simply not because prophecy was being fulfilled, but, was, but because it was Jesus himself who so attracted them. He whetted their appetites. He, he stirred their interest. They couldn't get over him. They couldn't get enough of him. I, I like this. What an example for us. The well-known historian Barbara Tuckman, who's written many books on various historical events, said this, it is the quality of being in love with your subject that is indispensable for writing good history. You find that with Luke. He's in love with the Lord Jesus Christ. He's, he's wanting then to convey all that he knows now, Luke could have been doing a lot of other things. He could have been performing surgery at the local hospital. He could have been working with people and trying to make them feel better. But no, he's taking the time because he loves the Lord Jesus Christ and he wants other people to know what he knows about him. Because knowing that is transformative. That's why he says what he does in verse 4. To Theophilus, so that you may know the exact truth about what you've been taught about Jesus Christ. Why you can have faith in his finished work. Clearly, Luke's gospel is good in the context of good history because he's clearly in love with his subject along with so many others. They were so captivated by Jesus, they simply couldn't leave him or his story alone. Are you equally captivated? What is the focus of your fascination? What is the focus of your fascination during this Advent season? What do you contemplate? What do you think about? What opportunities will the Lord present to you during this time frame 
upon which and during which we focus on the birth of Christ. What a great opportunity for us. Well, secondly, we want to consider Luke's passion. We've considered his fascination. What's his passion? Well, we read that Luke tells us there is a passion that marks this gospel story, and it's a passion for accuracy on Luke's and others' parts about getting the story right, getting it correct. Luke communicates to us that the story was passed on just as the original eyewitnesses of the gospel events had handed them down. And so there's accuracy. Accuracy that's confirmed through multiple witnesses. So what happens here is this. This is important. Luke talks to somebody about what they saw. What did you see when Jesus healed the blind man? What did you understand took place with regard to his birth? Well, I was there. I was one of the shepherds. I was in the town when it was communicated. I knew Joseph. I knew Mary. This is what happened. He then goes and talks to another person and asks them the same question. He keeps asking those questions over and over and over again to affirm that it's true. And so what we know then is that with regard to Luke's account, everything that he's saying to you in this longest gospel has been verified by multiple witnesses. That's important. It's just not a casual sit down, make it up as you go. He didn't sit down under a tree one day and write this down. He's going, according to what he is saying here, and I believe him, that he's talking to numerous eyewitnesses about what they saw Jesus Christ do. Raising people from the dead, healing, preaching, doing all of those things. He's talked to the witnesses. Indeed, the implication is that he's spoken to the apostles. In verse 2, we hear this, And just as they were handed down to us by those who from the beginning were eyewitnesses and servants, that word servant can be understood to be minister, or I believe, according to many commentators, that it is a reference to the apostles of the word or the gospel is another way to understand the word word in that verse. And so what you and I have here is an incredible legal document, if you will. It's like an affidavit in many ways. Many of you have have sworn to an affidavit, right? You've, You've given to someone else, an attorney or someone else, facts that you know about something, and then you swear to the truth of it. That's exactly what Luke is doing. He's gone to multiple people who are swearing to him that what they're telling him is true. And then he's then verifying what they're saying by going to other witnesses who saw the same thing and he gets the same exact account. That's remarkable, quite frankly. I don't know that we've ever appreciated the significance of the gospel of Luke in that way. But that's what Luke is doing. So you and I can rely upon that. He has a passion He had a passion for exactness. He refused to pad or fudge or exaggerate what came from numerous witnesses. That wouldn't work. People would be able to see through that and know that he was making things up. In fact, you know that there are many, so there are other things that were written. We have these 
kind of Gnostic Gospels and these other Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas and others, they've been rejected mainly because they fail this test. They fail the eyewitness test. You may wonder, how does a book get into the Bible? Well, it doesn't pass the test of witnesses. People would write things down and no one else could verify what was written. Only this guy knew it. Well, that's not going to work. But Luke has multiple. And other people go back and check him. Well, I'm going to go talk to those witnesses. What do they say? That's exactly what happened. And so Luke had a passion for exactness. The point is this. Luke wants Theophilus and all future readers to know that he and his predecessors took the utmost care to be exact and accurate in their writings. It was their passion to do that because they knew the content of what they were communicating was a matter of life and death. What was Luke's intention? We've talked about his fascination. We've talked about his passion. What was his intention? Well, we find that in verses 3 through 4. To write an orderly account for Theophilus. As I noted, we don't know much about him. Likely a wealthy benefactor. Paul, I mean, rather, Luke writes this gospel for him and the book of Acts for him. What a, what a, what a gift to receive. So Luke was providing him with a connected, coherent, and generally sequential account of the life of Christ that one could easily and readily follow. And if you read the Gospel of Luke, it has a real nice flow to it. it has, it's easy to read. It's precise. It's intriguing. It's exciting. This is what Luke's intention was. Luke was looking to present Theophilus with an account of the truth of the life and work of Jesus in a reliable and readable format. Luke believed that truth was worthy of his best presentation. And why not? It's the truth. We ought to be concerned about those things, and that should be our intention as well. That's why we need to know it. Do you know it? Do you know the story well enough that if you didn't have your Bible, you could tell somebody about it? About the birth of Christ, what happened, and why it's significant, and what are the facts related to it? You ought to be able to do that. So Luke's goal was to use both accuracy and readability as the means to building assurance and stability to the faith of Theophilus. Think about that. He's building assurance and stability for Theophilus' young faith, infant faith, and for us too. As Christians, assurance may come and go and be affected by all sorts of matters, but it will never begin to exist unless built on the firm foundation of a true gospel of a true gospel. And so we've looked at and considered Luke's fascination, we've considered his passion, and we've considered his intention. That's what these first four verses give to us. This introduction is very important and ought to set a foundation even for our own lives. While you and I may not be called to compile all this information Thankfully, that work has been done for us, and now we get to revel in the content, and I trust that our fascination would cause us to want to know it very well. 
All of you in this room who identify themselves as the redeemed of Christ and claim Him as Savior ought to know this story, ought to know the facts related to the story. Moms and dads, you ought to be able to tell your, tell your children about the facts related to the birth of Jesus Christ. Because if you get His birth wrong, the rest of it's all wrong. It's all wrong. Of course, Luke would be concerned about communicating this idea going back even to Genesis 3.15 where you have the promised seed who would come from the woman even to Galatians chapter 4 where Paul communicates that in the fullness of time these things were revealed. That's what Luke is doing. And so he's, he's bringing all of that together for us so we can see in a cohesive, coherent way the facts about the life of Jesus Christ, which then serve as the foundation for our assurance and stability in our faith. In our faith. And so these first four verses are quite important for us. Well, what does he do then? I'm not going to have time this morning to uh, preach my entire sermon. <laughs> uh, time is flying. I can't believe how quickly it has left this morning. But it's interesting how he begins with Theophilus, and he does take him back to the beginning. He says, in the days of Herod, king of Judea, there was a priest named Zacharias. So what do we have then? We have a historical fact. We have a setting. So we now have a time frame that has existed in human history that can be confirmed. That's important. We want to know when was Jesus, when, when, when did Jesus come? When did it all begin? What was the setting into which he's being introduced? What was prophesied about those things? Is this a fulfillment of anything? And importantly, he gives us that historical fact. But, but that fact isn't the most significant fact. The most significant fact is contained in who he then identifies was also living at that time, who is this lowly priest named Zacharias who we will find later should not have done what he did with Gabriel. He should have known better. But we find out some things about him. His name is Zacharias of the division of Abijah, and he had a wife. He had a wife who was from somebody, from the daughters of Aaron, and her name was Elizabeth. So we have two people, two people who really existed in human history. Luke would have confirmed that through multiple witnesses, as we've been assured of. And so we have a historical setting against which these two people are inserted. Against this background, and that's important, we need to understand that. Why is that important? It's because what it communicates to me is that in the darkest of times, God is at work. God has his people. Even in the face of Israel's apostasy and rebellion and rejection, you have a small remnant of faithful believers who still hold to what God intended the Israelites to do. You and I can take comfort in that. You and I can take great peace from the fact that even when all seems lost, consider what's going on. Rome rules the world as they would have known it. And here in this lowly hill country, this lowly priest 
who only gets to serve when his lot is picked. They throw his name in a hat. There's so many priests, they can't let them do their job. So they got to put all their names in a hat. Some guy walks over, looks over, sticks his hand down, pulls it out. Oh, Zacharias, you get to do the incense today. Elizabeth, who's she? Uh, the wife of a lowly priest. Not only are they lowly in the context of their socioeconomic setting, they're old, and she's barren. So she could never have kids, and now they're too old to have kids even if she could have kids. So we find that, that what, what, what Luke is doing is showing Theophilus how God works. And into this setting, Christ is going to be introduced. But first, there has to be one who heralds his coming. One who will affirm what the prophets foretold. The last prophet will come, John the Baptist. Well, Christ is the last prophet. John the Baptist is the second to the last. We'll be accurate about that. So John the Baptist, there hasn't been a prophet for 400 years. Nothing's going on. Pharisees have taken over. They've added all sorts of things. They've corrupted everything. It has no resemblance whatsoever to what God had ordained, except for a few who are left. And into this setting, we begin to see God working. It's all true. You can go back in historical accounts and find out that there really was a priest named Zacharias, that he really had a wife named Elizabeth that he really did serve in the context of this division of Abijah and that she was of the daughters of Aaron. That's all factually affirmable. Do you believe it? Now, it's interesting. We're going to be dealing with the fact that Zacharias didn't believe the facts. And as a consequence of that, he ends up paying the price. He doesn't get to talk for nine months. And the ladies rejoiced. <laughs> well, we're out of time. There's so much more here. But when we get to verse 6, this is really quite amazing because even Luke here begins to teach theology to Theophilus. Of course, as we talk about Christ, you can't get away from theology. But we do understand that these were people who had been justified by God and because of their justification were living a holy life. They had the right root, and as a consequence, they had fruit. We'll talk more about that next week as we move through this passage and into the story of Mary and Joseph. Lord, we love you. Thank you for Luke and for, through the inspiration of the Holy Spirit, the preservation of the message of the life of Christ and, and the setting in which this all occurred. Thank you for keeping this for us. We know that all Scripture is given by inspiration, that it's profitable for a variety of things. May it be profitable to us today, Lord, as Luke intended it to be. May we too have his fascination, his passion, and his intention with regard to the gospel. Forgive us, Lord, for not doing that. May his example convict us, and may our hearts be kindled anew to know more of Christ because we love him so very, very much. Forgive us for not loving him as we ought. We praise you in the name of Christ. Amen.